Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. All right. So today's podcast is going to be on Islamism in Western Europe. Obviously, I've t- titled it Islamism in the United Kingdom uh, or specifically a country. But uh, to talk about it, I have Vasik. Vasik. So, so the first name and the second name is the same. So, so pardon me about that. I have So, so Vasik, bhai, thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Kushal. I'm really pleased to be here. All right, so Vasik bhai, as it is your first time on the podcast, I'll request you to tell everybody a little bit about yourself, your background. I didn't want to do the boring reading, uh, the the bio uh, shebang, as they say. So if you could tell everybody a little bit about yourself first. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a British Muslim based in the United Kingdom in London. I, I'm a researcher by trade. Um, I look at uh, trends in terms of extremism, terrorism, Uh, look at uh, immigration um, in terms of importing or exporting extremism and things like that. Um, I comment and I write um, a lot on uh, social matters uh, that involve these sorts of things and also uh, community tensions uh, between religious groups, whether they come from a particular diaspora or the subcontinent or even the Middle East. Um, And uh, essentially, um, that's uh, really basically what I do, just talk and write about extremism and terrorism. Okay. All right. So obviously we're talking about Islamism in in Western Europe with a focus on England, but it's very important to get into the genealogy itself. Like how does it start, where it starts from? So maybe we can work there and you can take us from there and then I can feed off that. So could you start with the history itself of how Islamism has transformed in the United yeah. Kingdom or Western Europe? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first thing that your viewers would probably want to know is what is Islamism? Uh, Islamism essentially is a political ideology um, and it's a a way of introducing Islam to the public sphere. Now, what that actually means is that uh, private Islamic matters are now being exported and expanded onto the public. So if, for example, um, I as a Muslim want to eat halal meat, an Islamist would only want halal meat to be accessible for everyone and no haram meat. So halal means uh, permissible, haram means uh, forbidden uh, in Islam. And so this is what Islamism essentially is, is to basically Islamicize society so that it is Muslim focused and Islam friendly and that um, anyone who is a Muslim is uh, um, at an advantage and anyone who's a, a disbeliever, a kafir, uh, is uh, at a disadvantage. So um, Islamism is the political ideology of implementing Islam into policy, into laws, into uh, culture of the way people do things and say things. And uh, for me, as a British Muslim, I find that very worrying, particularly where we see some of that stuff happening in the West. Now, in terms of the genealogy and where did it come from, there's one thing that I think uh, we need to first establish is that um, in some respects, you cannot um, disconnect Islamism from Islam. Uh, A lot of what Islamism advocates for comes from Islam. It's then the implementation of it. And so when we think about uh, Islamism, we need to think about who were the leading thinkers behind it. So um, let's take a look at Egypt. During uh, the early 1900s, so 1920, there was a, um, an Egyptian teacher. Uh, his name was Hassan al-Banna. He uh, set up a group known as the Muslim Brotherhood. 
Now, the Muslim Brotherhood, what they wanted to do was uh, to um, implement Islam into uh, the social structures of uh, Egypt because they saw it as a viable solution to some of the um, jahiliya, uh, which means uh, ignorance, that was uh, taking place uh, in, in the region over there. And so they, they were trying to do this and they, they first implemented it or tried to implement it through, um, through work. So they were, they were taking uh, the very Marxist view of uh, trying to implement it through employers and employees and things like that. So using the language of rights that we, you know, we as Muslims need rights to be able to pray when we need to pray, regardless if we have to do a job uh, and things like that. So, um, you know, if, if the Adhan, which is the call to prayer, is made, then we should be able to stop what we're doing and go and pray because that's our right. And so they were building this framework, this model. And um, one of the leading thinkers within the Muslim Brotherhood, his name was, uh, was Syed Qutb. Now, Syed Qutb essentially uh, built the jihadist framework that we find groups like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, who um, would implement and use um, this framework to carry out the uh, jihadist attacks. So um, uh, what what he essentially done is he legitimized um, why uh, we could target non-Muslims in order to implement Islam, which was essentially Islamism for them, um, uh, through force, through violence, um, through any means necessary. Now, with Islamists, there are um, essentially three types of Islamists um, when, when we think about it. And uh, the typology has actually changed a lot since uh, we had, um, since the Muslim Brotherhood. It's, it's developed over time because what we found is that whilst the Islamists were carrying what they were doing, we weren't able to tackle them. And we'll get into why we weren't able to tackle them a little bit later. But um, essentially, there's three types of Islamists. Um, the first type are the violent Islamists, the second type are the non-violent Islamists, and then the third type are the participationalist Islamists. So the violent Islamists, um, as I've just discussed, are the Muslims that um, seek, and, the, and they are Muslims, uh, that seek to use violence to achieve their aim of Islam playing a role in public life. Um, groups such as Al-Qaeda and ISIS are notorious for these uh, sorts of things. Um, and this is in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, in Syria, Iraq, um, Tunisia, those sorts of places in Northern Africa as well. But we also see some of that um, then materialize here in the West. Then you've got the nonviolent Islamists. These, these guys are, are slightly interesting because um, they believe everything that the violent Islamists do. Uh, the only thing is that they won't actually carry out violence themselves. So they might advocate for someone else to go and do it on their behalf and say that this is necessary for you as a Muslim to do. And then finally, there are the participationist Islamists. And uh, I think in terms of whether we're looking at um, uh, the UK, America, or even places like India, these guys are probably the most dangerous uh, without us visually seeing what they're doing. And um, uh, without sounding like a conspiracy theory, these guys follow the law of the land um, and uh, they um, advocate for Islamism using the policies, the uh, right to speech, the framework within each one of these countries to advocate exactly the same thing as what the violent and the nonviolent Islamists want. The only thing is they're just using our own tools against us. 
And so that's that's for me that's uh, the probably the most worrying thing because these are your Islamists. They're, they're not your bog standard. You know, they dress in full black. You know, shouting Allahu Akbar and you know looking to cure people. These guys are in suits. They're they're running uh, you know local councils or, or authorities, public bodies, schools, colleges, uh, businesses. So these guys are are, are really um, dangerous in that sense because they're legitimizing it. And um, and they're using the framework within each of these regions to obviously um, put forth the argument of why we should be an Islamic state, so to speak. But um, in, in terms of Islamism, it started very much in the 1920s in Egypt. It evolved over that time. And now we have different types of Islamists with different types of strategies in different regions. And we're very much facing a threat in uh, a number of ways. So uh, this is something that fascinates me a lot about the latter group. The, the And you're right, the former group is very clear. I mean, they kind of announce their intentions very clearly so we can identify and uh, deal with the problem, uh, as they say. But in the latter group, what I find fascinating with uh, Islamism is that, let's say, what do you do when certain values that certain communities carry are not in sync with a modernity, liberalism, and uh, and basically, I mean, I'm a moral objectivist. I believe there are certain moral values that are applicable to all human beings, and they're just better than other moral values from the past or present. It doesn't matter. But we are living in a very interesting time, Vasik Bhai. We live in a time of moral relativism where uh, uh, and this moral relativism comes from a very specific school of postmodernism and uh, it comes from the west and it has completely engulfed the academia where you know uh, and the byproduct of that is islamism is actually using postmodernism and postmodernists and islamists are bedfellows it, it is a very weird uh, convenient relationship and it's happening in india before i talk about it the west it's happening in india uh, where in india we have separate uh, civil laws where uh, muslim men are allowed four wives and other religious uh, people are having their own thing i i think anybody who's a modernist who's a secularist should find this abhorrent uh, uh, i don't know if you know about it india was one of the only countries that allowed triple talaq instant triple talaq mm -hmm. until three years ago till the court struck it down even Pakistan got rid of it. And Pakistan is an Islamic republic. And in <laughs> India, I was like, no, no, we'll show you how it's done, boys. So it's like that. But uh, in this scenario, what does one do where clearly modernity is just not compatible with these values? How does one go about it? So I think, um, yeah, I think we, we, we do need to congratulate uh, countries who are uh, managing to tackle some of the uh, byproducts of Islamism. So, for example, the tri uh, the triple talaq. Um, as far as I understand, uh, it was Muslim women uh, advocating against yes. it, and uh, and I think uh, PM um, Narendra Modi um, um, actually um, you know um, abolished it because uh, it was um, discriminating against women. And you also have to then think when you've got uh, different laws because India is really uh, complex. You've got different laws for different religious groups. And, and this is, in my view, a, a ticking time bomb, because um, if, if a man can marry four wives and he's a, uh, and he can do this on the basis that he's Muslim, 
then there's already a, a, a an an act of discrimination being placed on anyone who's not Muslim. Not 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 that I'm advocating for marrying four wives, um, you know. But but the but the fact remains that if you're not Muslim, then that doesn't apply to you. Now, what happens if this man marries four wives, but then all of a sudden wakes up one day and uh, uh, says, actually, do you know what? I don't believe in God. What happens to his wives? Do they still remain, um, uh, you know, um, his wives or, or, or you know, d does uh, does that then become void, uh, the, the marriage? So there are lots of um, uh, things that need to be untangled when we're thinking about this. And in terms of the, the West and um, academia, um, there is the, the West is a different kettle of fish when it comes uh, to India. Um, we're not um, a um, we're, we're very much rooted in the Western tradition of Christianity, of uh, paganism, but Western paganism rather than Hindu paganism. And uh, when we're um, when we everything that we do is uh, within that framework. And so uh, in terms of um, academia and even particularly those on the left and how they treat Islamists very much falls into the bigotry of low expectations. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, um, and, and and I'm sure people in India have uh, seen this and heard of these stories. There were aspects of um, there, there was a there was a massive scandal and it's still going on now for over two decades now, which is known as the grooming gang scandal. Uh -huh, it does. And and this uh, essentially for your viewers who don't know what this is, it was um, uh, for all intents and purposes, white English girls, um, underage girls, um, might I add, who were being raped at an industrial scale by predominantly uh, British Pakistani men. Um, I deliberately don't put in Muslim there because I'm not entirely clear that there's a link between Islam and what they're doing, but there's definitely questions that need to be asked about the British-Pakistani uh, men who have been uh, carrying this out on an industrial scale and working as a close-knit network to carry out these heinous crimes against uh, um, our very own daughters. Because uh, if you do not consider the children within your own country, your own, um, you know, sons and daughters, or don't treat them in, in, in the same way, then in my view, there's something seriously wrong with you. And this is what it was. They didn't see them as that. They saw them as a product, something that could be used. And so when this was taking place, very much so, the left, particularly local authorities, um, in terms of law enforcement, the local councils, politicians were very fearful of tackling this. Now, although this is not necessarily an Islamist issue, it's an issue that we find that they deal with um, Islamists, is that they were so scared of tackling this issue because they believed that if they did, they would be accused of racism, first of all. Second of all, they would be accused of Islamophobia. And then third is that they would cause unrest and uh, they would cause civil unrest, uh, something that they weren't able to manage. And this is really, really patronizing for British Pakistanis like myself and Muslims like myself, because uh, for all intents and purposes, most of those British, British Pakistanis who did carry out these heinous crimes were Muslim. 
So this is a, um, obviously patronizing for us. First of all, it assumes that we can't handle critique of our own communities. Uh, second of all, um, it suggests that uh, we can't um, deal with issues alongside the framework within which we work, so um, our laws. And then the third thing is that um, local authorities and um, law enforcement, teachers, social workers, all of the uh, statutory bodies who are dealing with this assumed that because these guys are doing it, it must be part of their culture and we shouldn't do anything about it. And that's that's essentially what it is. When 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 you think about it, when you speak to some of these people, some of this, particularly the victims, they um this this is what they believe because um no other community is doing it in the same way that these guys are doing it. So there must be something inherent in the community. And what the um and here's here's the caveat that a lot of the time it gets missed. Pakistani Muslim women were raising their voices against the, the men in their community who were doing this. Some of the men were their own husbands, their brothers and their sons, but they were being ignored by these local authorities um, because the local authorities have these so-called um, um, community leaders as conduits between them and the community. And this is exactly the same thing with the Islamist framework. They want their own Muslim representatives between Muslims and the uh, the rest of the uh, the population in the UK, as well as obviously the authorities. So this bigotry of low expectations, this treating us differently compared to everyone else, in my view, is not only racist for you know anyone who's um, obviously not. Um, British, but also it's uh, anti-Muslim because it's treating both Muslims and British Pakistani people as uh, as someone else, as, as like a fifth column. Um, and the more that this carries on, the less that we actually end up uh, uh, defeating some of the things that uh, Islamists are advocating for. This is fascinating that this almost sounds as if a world within a world and, um, you know, you, you have agents. Well, uh, you know, these people live in their ghettos. I am the agent. I have learned. Uh, this is like an anthropologist going to Africa. And then the, the anthropologist finds a tour guide who can speak English. And then they the, and the, the tour guide knows English and the local language. And then they're interacting with each other. This, this literally sounds like that to me. It's like these people are not going to talk to them. They're not going to talk to them. And you have this agent. And and don't you think that exactly is the problem? Because it strengthens the, the mullah. Uh, I yeah. don't know how else to say it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, th I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's communities within communities. Um, and so we, we have this uh, policy in Britain of multiculturalism where uh, uh, communities were able to, um, you know, advocate uh, ways of doing things uh, that um, so long as they didn't break the law of the country, they, they were allowed to do. Um, one, of, one of the things that we found was that um, it was only recently, a few years ago, that uh, a loophole for uh, girls, to, oh, well, not just girls, but um, anyone under the age of 18, so 16, um, were allowed to get married so long as they had parents' consent. But what huh? we found, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was only, it was only recently that that loophole was closed. So um, lots of girls were being shipped off to Pakistan to get married. And the problem was nobody knew that it wasn't not okay. Of course it wasn't okay. Uh, we know for a fact in many of those cases, those parents were forcing their daughters, daughters, it was 
particularly daughters who were being sent off to marry guys back home and then bring them over here. That's that's what was happening. And, uh, you know, Sajid Javid, um, who was the former Home Secretary, he um, of uh, British Pakistani heritage, he actually uh, advocated for uh, closing off this uh, loophole. Um, and he was accused of racism by his own community um, for, for doing things like this. And, and it's just ridiculous, obviously. But but that's that's the thing that we're, we're facing is that we not only do we have a bigotry of low expectation from the left um, in, in the West, but we also have uh, hostility coming from within our own community as if we're betraying them um, for standing up for the rights of children. And it's uh, it's quite crazy. It's so disappointing that, you know, the community or a section of the community thinks that you are a betrayer because you stand up for objectively better values. It says a lot about the community, then I don't know what else to say. But I want to talk about blasphemy and extremism. I mean, we all... uh, Now, you know, I'll take the cue from multiculturalism. A lot of times, every time, so so we all know what happened in Leicester between the Hindu community and the Muslim Mm -hmm. community. We, We don't need to rehash that. But why I'm using that as an example is that you had the standard lines from Nigel Farage or Douglas Murray and many other people. And I like to take names because I think ideas and names should be taken. Uh, you know, ideas should be discussed, names should be taken. And and the standard trope starts, oh, multiculturalism has failed. Um, new immigrants, immigration has failed because they're bringing their old tribal feuds over here. Like my, mm. my question is, were the Catholics and Protestants uh, from India yeah. when they were fighting on the streets of England? Uh, were soccer hooligans India yeah. <laughs> when they are they they beat each other up? Mm. Uh, is the English Defence League Indian? You know, yeah. it is that that local street in Mumbai called England, and we sent them <laughs> over there. So my problem is that is it a is multiculturalism a problem, or at a fundamental level, Islamism just does not compatible is not compatible with anything that is decent, objectively better, and brings joy mm. to our life. Well, uh, I know multiculturalism gets a hard time here. Um, I'm a bit more uh, sympathetic to it because I think there are some positives to it. But um, when we think of multiculturalism, it doesn't just involve Muslims. It also involves Sikhs and Hindus. And we don't see them out on the streets, you know, um, screaming whatever it is that they're expected to scream if they're being offended. So there's something wrong somewhere else. And in my view, it's uh, Islamists. And what we need to, uh, and I think your viewers would be quite interested in hearing this, is that um, this all took place uh, all the way in uh, 1989 when Salman Rushdie published his book, The, Sa- uh, the Satanic Verses. And uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, the, the supreme leader in Iran at the time, uh, issued a fatwa. A fatwa is known as an edict, so it's, a, a, it's a, an opinion that um, uh, someone can take that he should be killed for it because uh, he's uh, disrespected the prophet and uh, uh, has also um, disrespected Islam and uh, therefore disrespected Muslims and therefore he's now a threat to everything and to our existence uh, and he must be uh, killed. And so um, this is when British Muslims of um, not just uh, from the subcontinent, but from uh, the Middle East as well, um, really showed their, um, and this was a minority, so that doesn't need to be made clear, a minority who showed their true colours came out, were burning effigies, they were screaming and shouting, um, they were even burning some bookshops um, who were selling it, 
Um, <clears throat> and Salman Rushdie's life was at threat. And so uh, for a community, uh, a diverse community that was quite quiet uh, before this, to then out of nowhere just, you know, explode and, uh, you know, show uh, the discontent towards anyone who said anything against Islam, um, or any, you know, no matter how innocuous it was, as long as they perceived it as um, as blasphemous, it's it's just quite um, quite crazy. But then nothing really happened as a result of tackling that. We didn't tackle that here in the West, and we saw that it started to um, obviously take shape um, further. Uh, in fact, um, only a, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, actually, um, a teacher. Um, from a school called Batley Grammar School. He had shown a depiction of the Prophet Muhammad. And I believe um, the, de the depiction was similar to the one that Charlie Hebdo had shown with the Prophet Muhammad having a, a turban on with a, with a bomb in, uh, in it. And um, he had shown it in class and a student had complained to his parents or, or to some community elder. Uh, the next day, you just had mobs of Islamists there and they were screaming and shouting. They wanted him out. Um, they applied pressure. Um, the police were there. They couldn't stop them because, hey, you're allowed to protest uh, so long as you're not breaking the law. They weren't technically breaking the law, but, um, you know, when, when you when you have that many people there, uh, want, uh, knowing what we know from the Salman Rushdie episode, um, they're, you know, um, saying what they said. It makes you really, you know, wonder and reevaluate and uh, do a risk assessment and think, actually, should I be here or, or not? Um, and and not just that, but uh, an Islamic charity uh, had actually published his name online and put a target essentially on his head. Um, and nothing was done about that. The political elite were silent when, when this happened. And they were silent. In fact, it wasn't that they were silent when Salman Rushdie happened. Some people even suggested that maybe he deserves it. Maybe um, he's got a role to play in, in this. And, and that's obviously ridiculous because here in the West, um, we have freedom of speech. We have freedom of belief. We're allowed to critique any religion. And uh, as a Muslim, I'm happy for you as a, as a non-believer, uh, as a Hindu non-believer, to critique Islam but what you're not going to see from me is um, me reacting in the way that they reacted. And in fact, what we found is that most Muslims don't actually react like that. Um, only recently this year, we had um, a, a movie um, that was published, um, that was uh, um, put out in cinemas, um, The Lady of Heaven. And, and it, was a, it was made by Shia Muslims um, and Sunni Muslims, uh, some Sunni Muslims took issue with it, um, and they were uh, a lot of them were Islamists. Uh, they pressured cinemas to um, to withdraw it from their um, from showing it, um, and they succeeded in that. Uh, they even managed to get a petition signed with over a hundred thousand signatures to uh, get this whole thing debated in Parliament. So just just to put this into context, they wanted a movie. To be debated in parliament parliament have got lots of other things to be doing like sorting out the cost of living crisis you know we've got issues with russia we've got issues with iran and these guys want parliament to be talking about a movie um but the point that i'm making here is that although they got hundred thousand signatures and that might seem a lot that was uh, that was around three percent of the british muslim population they don't have support that's one theory the other theory is 
that Muslims didn't come out and do a counter demonstration or didn't uh, do a counter petition. And that's something I think we need to do as Muslims ourselves here living in the West is that when Islamists are trying to advocate against principles and values that we hold dear to our uh, to us here in Britain, which is why we choose to live here and not go to an Islamic state, we need to be standing up to, uh, against them and standing up for our, um, our rights. And we shouldn't be, be um, fed the lie that by doing that, you're somehow betraying Islam or betraying Muslims because you're not. What you're doing is you're giving everyone a, flip, a fair platform. Yeah, and this is the story of our times that the moderate in this, I don't know where does the moderate go? And the politicians don't help, right? Mm. Like, so, you know, I'm going to take this question because I think it's perfectly a segue into what you were talking about. You know, the, the question is, my question is, will UK, the, the United Kingdom political machine ever wake up to the threats of hardline Islamism? Or it's just, you know, how uh, it's funny. Uh, it's going to be vote bank politics, just like we have it in the Indian subcontinent. Yeah, I, th I think they are going to wake up to it. They have, I mean, um, when we, we've had two terrorist attacks take place against parliamentarians and one unfortunately uh, died as a result of it. Um, and, uh, um, and, and so we, we um, parliament, parliamentarians, politicians, they do have to take it seriously because uh, Islamists don't care who you are, what your status is. If they perceive you as a threat, they will do everything they can to obviously um, to end your life. And um, and I think one of the caveats to put there is that ending someone's life or using terrorism isn't their end goal. That's actually not what they're, they're out to do. That's just a strategy. And, uh, you know, in, in any kind of um, uh, discourse in terrorism, uh, or terrorism studies, so to speak. Um, terrorism is always used as a strategy. It's not an end in itself. And so th the whole point is that um, they're able to frighten people by doing all these sorts of things um, so that we don't ever say anything about the Prophet Muhammad or we can't critique Islam or we can't critique when a Muslim carries out a, a, an attack against you know innocent people because of his religious beliefs. And, and that's the problem. Um, that uh, unless we do something about that, we're going to be stuck in this loop and we're never going to be able to break that loop. Um, and uh, we're never and if we don't break that loop, we will uh, end up that that loop, that loop will just keep going on and on and on. And it will just increase, increase. And we're then going to be on the back foot. Um, and I do think um, parliamentarians, whilst they have woken up, woken up, they need to um, now start doing something about it. Yeah, but when when will parliamentarians or politicians realize that there is more to politics than just voting banks and groups of people who vote? That you know, people work hard to build certain societies. Those societies work well based on certain principles. And then you know, as I say, people come in evolutionary terms. It's the free rider problem, a person who games the system, right? And uh, it's it's at, 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 at the evolutionary level or the game theory level, which is the best strategy to tackle such a problem? Is it tit for tat? Uh, that uh, so I'll give you an example in Canada. So in Canada, everybody is gaming the system. I don't know if you know about this. Like in a Canadian primary, 
you don't even have to be a Canadian citizen to vote for a primary of a political party. Right. Anybody can vote for it. You're a student in Canada studying yeah. in university. You're a tourist in Canada. Mm. Just here for th- at that particular point of time on vacation, you can go and vote in the primary. Now, that's a pathetic system, by the way. Yeah. So, so what happens is that certain groups have started gaming the system. So they, even if it's a party, they may not vote for. But the candidate that wins the primary in that party, they try to make sure that that part that person is there. That kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Now you can say, well, it's a democracy. Who's stopping you from doing it? And but at the end of the day. This creates a slippery problem. And when, so how does modern liberal society respond to someone that has gamed its own innate weakness? How does one, how do you deal with it then? Well, yeah, I, I think that's, that's the thing. We, we need to look at those loopholes and where it's being exploited. Um, and I think one of the things that um, might be relevant to your viewers is to understand uh, what was happening during the Leicester riots to give you a, a flavor of uh, kind of what was happening and why nothing was being done or why it's being almost ignored. Um, what, what we found in the Leicester riots is that um, there, were, there were some Islamists who were present there and they were clearly um, making anti-Hindu sentiments um, mm-hmm. and they were ridiculing the religion. You can ridicule the religion all you want because we live in a free society here. Yeah, but and I support cannot, that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, but you cannot ridicule the people, the 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 believers of that, um, because um, unless because because obviously what you what you're doing is you're just targeting a community because of of what they believe, and and we should never do that. In fact, I don't even do that with my own community. I only ever target people who actually go and do something, uh, um, you know, illegal or uh, egregious. And so this was happening and they were using the language that they themselves don't advocate for themselves. And what I mean by that is they were using free speech. And so they were t- they, they were saying, well, it's my right to say, you know, these people are, you know, being reincarnated into the most pathetic of uh, animals or creatures or whatever, you know, um, how pathetic must they be to even be reincarnated as a Hindu, things like that. So they were saying things like that. And th- this is clearly bigoted towards Hindus for being Hindu. Okay. And, um, and what they do there is they, um, first of all, there's, they, they use the language of free speech and say, well, look, it's my right to free speech. But they will never allow you to do the same thing to them because um, obviously that would be anti-Muslim bigotry. But because they're doing it against someone else, no, 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 it's you know free speech. I'm allowed to do this. And then <clears throat> the second thing that they're doing is they're wrapping it into the language of self-defense or provocation. Look, you're provoking me to say this. I'm defending myself. Uh, this is why I'm saying this. So essentially, they're justifying why they're saying it. And so when you think of even the Canadian primaries and people can um, vote and whatever, they will say, look, it's my right. You know, and that's a loophole that needs to be um, closed off because the more that you have these loopholes, the more these guys are going to get emboldened. And the more, for example, uh, uh, particularly in the Leicester riots, 
Hindus are going to be at risk because how are you going to differentiate between Hindu and Hindutva when most Hindus, nearly all Hindus, I think, uh, agree that Hindutva um, comes from um, Hinduism and it's a, a form of Hinduness. And so they're, they're obviously, um, you know, changing terminology to suit their own needs and saying Hindutva, extremism uh, and so on and so forth. And, you know, there, there, there could be a debate to have about Hindutva extremism. Fine. But the fact is, what are normal law-abiding Hindus saying? They're saying, actually, look, you know, we are what we are. And uh, you're now, by you using the language of Hindutva, you're actually targeting us. So are these guys going to moderate themselves? I doubt it. But at the same time, they expect us to moderate um, ourselves when we critique them. Yeah. And, and, you know, to add to this Hindutva straw man, I was forced to do a monologue on this podcast, literally announcing I am Hindutva. And I'll tell you why. I did it. You know, and every time mm. a guest comes, they should know I am Hindutva now. Because I'm fed up of it. I'm fed up of the Hindutva straw man. Hindutva literally mm. was started by a guy. I mean, the, 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 the word itself was coined by a Bengali, coined, uh, not coined, coined by a Bengali. When he explained what Hindutva is, mm. he explained the verb, the root. And, uh, and then later on, the, most, uh, the person who popularized it the most was Vinayak Damodar Savarkar. How many mm. people realized that he was not even a, like a proper believer, believer in that sense? He was a skeptic. He, mm. he, was, a, he was a reformer. And, and without reading anybody's work, you just use this term. Look, they don't like the fact that BJP keeps winning in India. Mm. And I don't know how else to say it, but until the Hindu would just shut up and not talk about anything, he was fine. Yeah, they don't like a Hindu that talks back. I, I, I'm mm. gonna say it as simple. Like, take my case personally. I I, I support same-sex marriage. I support yeah. every single liberal value that the West stands from, and I don't come at it from a Western paradigm. Mm. I come at it from my own native dharmic paradigm. Yeah, I believe dharma is flexible enough to support these things. Mm. I am a disbeliever, an open disbeliever who does not believe in reincarnation or a deity or anything. Mm. And I still call myself a Hindu. Why should I play by paradigms set by, I don't know how to say it, but Abrahamic religions. And it stems yeah. from Abrahamic privilege mm. that the world is constructed in Abrahamic privilege. And I don't, I'm not an answerable to that. And it frustrates me that Hindutva is thrown off as a, and, and I say this with full responsibility. If they're going to go and start doing surveys of how many people like Modi, BJP, and are sympathetic to RSS inside yeah. the diaspora, they're yeah. going to get a shock of their life. <laughs> yeah. Because most people do. Yeah. yeah. Most people do. When, mm. and, and now what has happened is I feel so terrible that the Hindu community is now, oh my goodness, uh, are we going to lose our job or something? So is the Western way then... Is the Western society now going to decide under pressure from Islamists that the entire pantheon of Hindu communities are going to walk on eggshells now? Well, that's that's the, that's a really good question, Kushal. Um, that that is the misinformation, the the narrative that seems to be um, going um, doing the rounds at the moment, because all of a sudden the whole of uh, Britain has been woken up to this term Hindutva. They don't know what it is. And the only people who are talking about it are these Islamists and um, leftist um, uh, journalists who also don't know anything about it and are putting out nonsense pieces uh, that are supporting 
the theory behind um, what Islamists are pushing, which is that it's an extremist ideology. In fact, it's similar to Islamism, that they're trying to create a Hindu nation or, or a supremacist nation, in fact, and that anyone who lives under, under there would be at a disadvantage. But the thing is, the, 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 where, where is, where are the voices within the Hindu community here in the West? They really do need to stand up against this narrative. I mean, I tried um, to give some balance in terms of the reporting. I think I read um, the, there was one famous um, uh, newspaper outlet who covered the Leicester riots. They, they published around um, 11 articles on it. Out of those 11 articles, Hindutva was mentioned 13 times, whereas uh, Islamism was mentioned once. And not just that, a whole article was um, uh, dedicated to the Hindutva ideology and not one was dedicated to Islamism and during this time period. And so you can see what's happening here. They're, they're giving life to this bogeyman. So nobody then needs to focus on, you know, those Islamists who were, um, you know, um, tearing down the saffron flag and then burning it or throwing eggs at mandras and, you know, um, making rude gestures at another one, uh, another temple in um, Smithwick. They're now thinking, who, who is this 200-man uh, march? Because that's all they ever talk about, that 200-man march. Who are they? Now, in my view, that was an irresponsible march. They shouldn't have done that. If they were going to do a march, they need to get the proper permissions and do it. But the fact that they didn't get the proper permissions to do it, and then you had um, some others who were there with, um, you know, balaclavas on and, and some weapons, that's just created a whole mess for the Hindu community because Islamists have just jumped on that and said, look, we're just reacting to this. We've been provoked. They've come to our area um, our Muslim area, so to speak, and we have to do something about it. If we don't do something about it, they're going to be, you know, um, uh, um, vandalizing our, our mosques or they're going to be attacking our women and our children and all this sort of nonsense. I don't know what attacks have been taking place. As far as I can see, the attacks that were taking place were against the Hindu community, but no one seems to be talking about that. And as soon as I bring some balance or some other commentators bring some balance, it's just being, you know, swallowed up by, by the leftist media. And, you know, it's, it's all a big mess right now. We need some leadership in the Hindu community, which is a diverse community, both in theology and culture, uh, to actually tackle this. And at the moment, I don't see it. Yeah, and uh, uh, and best of luck actually if it ever comes up. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the, it's a disease. Uh, it's a it's a fast spreading disease everywhere. The Hindu community. Uh, I I just think Hindu community does not understand the language of discourse or politics. They're very good immigrants in terms of going there, getting a job, making money. That's all they know. Nothing else. <laughs> they really don't know anything else. And I say this as a Hindu, and I'm gonna get a lot of hate. But uh, I'm conscious of your time. I know you have to leave now. So, but before we wrap things up, um, mm -hmm. I'm gonna leave you with the last words. Well, well, first of all, thank you, Kashar, for giving me the platform to, to talk about this. Um, I think it's really important that we know what the threat is of Islamists are, uh, not just uh, to Muslims themselves, but also to other communities, religious religious and non-religious, particularly in terms of the Hindu community in, in India. Um, some of what I've been talking about, you will see uh, manifesting itself in India. Uh, India is obviously um, a, a very complex place with uh, different laws for different religions. And uh, so um, in, in my view, I think you need to start reevaluating how you um, 
you know, um, implement uh, some policies and procedures to tackle this. But give the Islamists a platform, challenge them, and uh, you can beat them because their argument is flawed and it's it's not impossible. But you need to be confident in, you know, in, in the, the Dharmic philosophy, in Bharat as a civilization, because uh, it is strong enough to beat um, the Islamists. And, uh, you know, best of luck. Um, I'm there with you. And, and we, 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 we all are, in fact, in the West there with you. So so not to worry. Well, thank you very much, Vasik Bhai. And, and, and just before I close things up, uh, I just want to remind everyone, you know, today a disbeliever was talking to a believer. I did not even bring it up in the podcast because it was immaterial, because both of us believe in similar values, which is mutual respect, reciprocity, and normal human beings deal like this. Vasik Bhai is a believer. He knows I'm a disbeliever. He still came and spoke with me because he has more in common with me than those crazy people. <laughs> <laughs> So that's the whole point. And I don't know what the hell is happening to us. I thought, you know, we we won the battle of common sense. But I guess the, the West has a death wish. And then the West likes to export its death wish to everywhere else. And, and India, anyways, always had a death wish with its absurd civil laws. And I, I don't know what's happening. But I I hope what you guys got, garner from this discussion. And I know you're used to an hour and a half podcast. But Vasik Bhai had to go. So... We're cutting it short, but he's going to be back again for other episodes. He's promised me that, and I'm going to hold enough uh, 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 for his end of the promise. So we'll, we'll have more discussions, maybe more specific to certain areas where we can do deep dives in certain areas and certain aspects. But try and understand this problem, people. Respect and love democracy. I love democracy. I love freedom. Learn to value your freedoms and your democracy and please support people like Wasik. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. You can read his articles. I've plugged in his, I think there's an unheard profile page. I've plugged it there in the description of the podcast too. And as far as I'm concerned, you guys know the drill. You can, you know, subscribe to the Charvak podcast YouTube channel. You can like this video. You can leave your comments and, uh, you know, you can become a member on YouTube, Patreon, whatever. You can buy the merch. I think the Diwali sale on Kadak merch is on right now. So if you want, you can go and buy this merch on Kadak merch there right now. And I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye-bye.